Welcome to the Redemption's Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. All right, hey, it's good to see you. Uh, It's good to be here today. It is really nice to have a couple more of our families back, to see a couple more kids uh, running around. So so here's, here's my ask. We've 14 or 15 months without kids' class has been difficult. We're still trying to all get back together. So uh, there have been some ladies who've worked really, really hard on getting that kids' class going. Uh, really, Lauren and Miranda were the kind of leads with that, and then other people are serving down there. So here, here's kind of my ask. Whether you have kids or not, if you appreciate just starting to be able to see more uh, of the family around as we kind of start getting back together, would you consider just thanking them, thanking the people who are serving? Because it's a good gift to, to give your time down there so that more of us uh, can be together. And then here's my, my, my I'll slip it in, my, my kind of pastoral other thing. And if you're really appreciative, like, you could maybe think about volunteering yourself too. But it is a grace to have people serve for us, and I hope that you're thankful for that. I'm thankful that they're down there, and I'm thankful to get to see a couple more of you today. So uh, we're getting really close. This is the second to last message in our series over the book of First John. So we're almost there, and knowing that it's the kind of the end of the book, we're in the fifth and final chapter, uh, we can expect John to kind of use this section to home in on his main focus of the, the book and he's going to kind of largely home in on the end by putting one question in front of us. And the question is this, we're not going to do a long intro, we're just going to kind of dive into it. The question that John wants us to be uh, processing is, why should I believe in Jesus? The key word is, is why should I? Uh, that's a question that we may not have wrestled with for a little while because it's not, do you believe in Jesus? Or have you put your faith in Jesus? Instead, it comes from another angle. Why? Why in the world should I do that? Why should I have a personal faith in Jesus? Why should I accept that Christ is, the the words that they'll be using a ton in the text today, the Son of God? Why should I believe that? That's a question that uh, we've got to kind of mess with a little bit. And as we kind of prod that question, we'll understand that that's not just a question, it's kind of the question that all of our hearts will have to ask, and really the entire world has to to delve into kind of processing what they think over this one question. Now, this book was written 2,000 years ago, over that actually, Uh, but think about this for a second. That question of why should I believe in Jesus is still just as potent and and relevant to us today as it was back then, and the reason for that is our hearts, the hearts of men and women, are, are, are largely the same. So that means because our hearts are the same, really culture is is a whole lot the same as well. Sure, things look a ton different, but the core of things are still very much the same right now as they were over 2,000 years ago, which makes this question just the kind of the same impact for us now as it had for them. Now, in this fifth and final chapter, we'll see John pressing this question, and he's going to answer it in two ways, though. He's going to give you the why you should believe, and he, and he does it from two distinctly different angles. The first is, is he'll give you an external answer or proof. This is why you should believe in Jesus, and then he'll kind of land the plane, we'll land the sermon today with an internal truth of, of inside and in your heart and working in you. What's the internal reason that you should believe in Jesus? And he'll give us a pretty compelling answer if we choose to believe it. Before we read into uh, the very specific text, uh, I'll say that this text has many things that we'll have to delve into to understand or else this text won't make sense 
for us. There's a lot of terms that we're not used to. And the other thing that may surprise us is John will speak in a very kind of legal court procedural manner in this text. And that throws us off a little bit because if you've been with us through this series, he's not done that at all in the book. And then all of a sudden he shifts into saying testimony or testify eight times. There's this trial language and there's evidence and there's presenting of a, a case. And that's what we need to see. He's doing this on purpose. The trial is over, the, the, the question or the charge of why I should believe in Jesus. Now, There are many reasons that John invokes this trial language in the text, but the one that we want to make sure to grasp a hold of in the main way is he does this legal thing in the text for this reason. The world back then seemingly has put God on trial. Remember this book was written not really that long after Jesus had ascended back to to heaven. Uh, The time frame wasn't that far off, and and yet it wasn't very far off that Jesus lived and ministered and died and rose again and commissioned the church. Even though it wasn't that far off, there were still many who wanted to put Jesus in in the rear view. They wanted to forget about him. And the way John talks about it in this book is there are many who wanted to invent new truths that kind of went around Jesus, new beliefs new systems of faith that suited kind of really what they wanted more than what Jesus told them. And these systems that they wanted didn't believe in Jesus or who he was or what he came to do. Specifically, they didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. He was just a man. Let's just forget about him and move on. We don't need to obey him. We don't need to follow him. There's this groundswell of let's leave Jesus behind that the culture back then was experiencing, or at least the church was experiencing then. And it started them to kind of get in this situation where they felt like they needed to be on their heels and on the defensive. As if they were on trial because the world around them had put God on trial, I think we could maybe resonate with that though. That situation is not much different from what we find in ourselves right now. That's why I referenced the state that they were in back then is, is really not that different than the state that we are in right now. The current culture that we live in loudly and publicly is putting God on trial all around us all the time, saying how, okay, if God is loving, why would he do this? Or why would he let that happen? That's the undertone. Or how could a loving God simultaneously have wrath? Because if he was really loving, he would, he would you know, forgive everyone. Or how could a God who is loving only allow one way to himself? Or how could a God of the Bible say that his faith or his way is better than other people's way over and over and over? Our world is putting God on the trial for the words in the Bible. And this kind of leads to a culture of believers who feel they're worried because they're afraid that the trial on God is going to turn on them and they're on the defensive. Now notice the audacity of this scenario of putting God on trial though because my mind always wants to think of the deeper implications of things when we read them. The created beings of God are us. We are humanity, right? There's a creator and a creation. We are firmly in the, in the creation category. The created beings of God have decided to leverage their perceived power to put their creator on trial, This is an awkward thing to to try and and dig into. The creator is being put on trial by the creation, and we dig even deeper, and we understand this. Look at what Jesus or what God has already done. God has sent Jesus uh, in in order to, to help us, right? We see this all over uh, the word of God. God has sent Jesus to make a way to redeem us from our sin. 
He's done this. To, to justify sinners, even though they have sinned. To, to atone for the sin that we have committed. Those words that are on repeat in the Bible of redeem and justify and atone. Those are all legal terms. And that's, that's really important and it's really specific that it's that way. Now follow me. This means that part of God's great plan of redemption is to set humanity free from their trial for their sin. You get that? God is acting to get you out of the punishment that your sin should bring upon you to make a way to where you are not convicted, to where you don't sit in darkness and you don't sit in shame and you don't sit in death any longer, but you come to life because of Jesus' account that you can hear innocent over you in your trial when you're actually guilty. God has made a way so that any charge that comes at you will not stick if your belief is in his son, Jesus. The only thing that sticks to you is mercy and salvation. This is to say we have been given life in Christ, not a life sentence. Nothing's been taken away. Everything has been given to us. He's literally given us access to eternal life through his son. So the same creation who God has made a way to be redeemed and set them free from trial and take them off of trial has thanked God by putting him on trial. I will make a way out and we have thanked him by putting him in. Oh, you need to defend yourself now. Why did you, why did you do it that way? The question isn't, why didn't you do it that way? The question is, why did you give away it all? This is really showing the darkness in the world and the darkness that our own hearts kind of deal with is to, to begin to, to do that. So in this text, we see a courtroom mentality as John is going, okay, you want to put God on trial? Let's walk this thing out. Let's do it. Let's see how that would go for you. So we need to hear this as John is, is kind of presenting, hey, you're all putting them on trial anyway, so I'm just going to walk it out. Let's do this thing. So that's how the text will go. 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, right? He's making a court case here, uh, that testify the Spirit and the water and the blood and these three all agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God... Uh, has the testimony in himself, who does not believe in God has, been, has made him a liar because he, uh, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne consider, or concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in the son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. That's kind of his closing argument, if you will. This is the word of the Lord. This is the text that we're going to be in uh, today. And, and this text is really difficult to understand from our modern Western perspective because we're over 2,000 years removed from the people that it was written to. So we don't understand that people's heritage, their culture, their stories, what's baked into their DNA or, or their wiring or how they think. We don't understand any of that because we're 2,000 years later. So that means that the, the way that the original audience would have heard this 2,000 years ago would be completely different because when they hear certain words, they key into the things that we're like, I don't know what you mean, man. And so what we're going to need to do is we're going to have to work to clarify uh, some terminology points in this text or else we'll be lost 
in the text. I don't want to turn this overly into a historical message, but we're just going to have to deal with a couple things here, and then hopefully it'll land. So the first that we have to know that may not make sense for us, that in a court setting, truth was always decided by testimonies. Uh, So in order to be guilty, two to three witnesses had to testify against you. That means you could not be guilty in the the court of public opinion or one person brings a charge or somebody doesn't like you and brings a charge against you and there's crooked cops or anything. That doesn't work. Two to three people have to verify a testimony or else you will not have charges that can stick against you. And the opposite is true. To have a truth that you claim in court corroborated, you need to have two or three people who go, yeah, he's not lying. That's the truth. Two to three witnesses always had to happen or had to uh, be had in that time in this type of scenario so that people can bring false claims and false truths all around. Now, this isn't very difficult for us to see why we would do this. This is actually how, we, uh, how history is written down, if, if it's not revisionist history, that is. Uh, history is written this way. The verified testimonies of many people are brought together and documented because we value consistency in testimony to verify what is true or false. It's extremely important. There needs to be a consistent testimony in order to consider that true. This is why John says in verse 7 that there are three that testify about Jesus. What is he saying? It's good enough to hold up in court, baby. There's three of them. This is true, and he's establishing that Jesus really is the Son of God through the testimony of, of three what we'll call big hitter witnesses in the text that you really can't you really can't kind of go against them. No matter how much you cross-examine them, you can't cut down their character and you can't take away what they have said. So he's going to be digging into this further through the testimony of why we should believe. He's going to go, well, these three credible witnesses will tell you why you should believe. So in this, he brings up the testimony of three key witnesses, but that still leaves us needing to clarify what in the world are the testimonies that he's referencing. Because right, let's, be, let's be honest, we read that text and are like, that's super weird, I don't know what he's talking about. Because it's disconnected from us. So we need to understand what he's talking about when he says the water and the blood and the spirit. Who's the water? What's the water? How does that count as a, a testimony? That's what we're going to, to jump into so we can understand the historical significance of these three witnesses that John kind of calls upon in this situation. So the, the water, the blood, and the spirit are the three witnesses. We'll just dig into them one at a time. The, the water is the first one, right? Because Jesus came in the water and uh, the blood. That was from verse 6. Now, the first century Jewish person uh, referencing water for them would have brought their mind back to the, the story of their ancestry, Right? It wasn't just H2O. It was, it, it, there was a story involved. There was a tie involved for them immediately their mind would go back to the story of their family. In order to understand this, what we have to do is we have to go back to the story of Exodus. God's people were in bondage. They'd kind of gone wayward and and sinful, kind of stopped following God, and they found themselves under the hand of a harsh slave master, uh, Egypt, and specifically Pharaoh. So God's people are in slavery, and you need to draw your mind to the story of Moses and the 10 plagues in that moment, and and Pharaoh, in order to understand kind of what he's getting at. The storyline there, you remember Moses, let my people go, no, let my people go, here's 10 plagues, okay, fine, I'll let your people go, That, that whole thing is what he's referencing here. The the story kind of culminates with Pharaoh saying, okay, you can go. 
And the people of God, they start making their way away. As Pharaoh said, okay, just just get away from me. They make their way out. They don't think they have to be in a big hurry because Pharaoh said you could go. Then all of a sudden, Pharaoh changes his mind when he sees that his son has died. And he goes, never mind. I'm not letting you live. Take the chariots. Go kill them all. So Pharaoh is running after them. And they find themselves stuck between the Dead Sea And Pharaoh, in a line of chariots, you're going to kill them all. It's not a really good situation then. They thought they had time. They have no time. They're in desperate need of a way to escape. In that moment that they're trapped between the water, do you remember what happens? God intervenes, and he splits the waters, and they walk across on dry land. And the people of God cross uh, the sea and that water to be delivered. So the understanding from them always is to go through water means to, to be delivered by the living hand of God. God stepped in, and God saved them. They're not going to make a boat. They're not going to swim for it. They're not going to get across. The only way out is for God to redeem them, even though they had gone wayward. So he splits the water, gives them a miracle involving water, and water for them symbolizes redemption from there on out over and over and over. Then we fast forward to the time around when Jesus was uh, alive and doing his earthly ministry. At the beginning of Jesus's ministry, we hear about this man named John the Baptist. That was the kind of, he freaked people out a little bit wearing camel hair and eating locusts. And this John the Baptist, he's baptizing people in the Jordan. Now, have you ever asked yourself why he was baptizing people? Like, why in the world would he do that? For us, baptism is a sign. We call it an outward sign of an inward faith in Jesus. It's a proclamation. You don't get saved when you're in the water, but it's a proclamation of what has happened for you. Just like Jesus died and on the third day rose again, when we get in water, we are, when we go under, saying the old me is dead because of Jesus, and now I am alive in and through him. So that's what it means to us, but what about for them? For them, they were getting baptized before Jesus died. So most of them didn't even know who Jesus was. So to say I'm connecting to Jesus and his death and his resurrection, it couldn't have meant that because it it hadn't happened. It didn't mean that to them. It meant something completely else. I hope you're still with me. Follow me a little longer. The cross and the resurrection hadn't happened. So Baptism meant something else for them. For the Jewish person back then to get in water, to be baptized, was that person getting into the water, and it was for them saying, I'm wayward like my ancestors. I am too one who is slaved, enslaved by my sin. My ancestors were sinful, and so am I. I've ignored the covenant that we made with God. I haven't fulfilled it. And because of that, I find myself in need of redemption. I need God to step in my story like he stepped into my ancestors' story. I need God to rescue me like he rescued my ancestors. I need an exodus moment in my life. I'm getting in this water. God, give me a miracle and deliver me. I need you. That's why they called it a baptism of repentance is saying, I'm wayward and I need help. I need to turn and I need you to deliver me. So for them, baptism was about repentance and faith. It was all about saying, God, I need your hand just like other people did. Deliver me, oh Lord. This is what water meant to them. So when John says Jesus came by water, longest setup ever to tell you what water is, it's immediately referencing, they would have known, oh, they're talking about when Jesus was baptized. 
immediately came by water is this understanding of redemption. They would occlude in. They're talking about when Jesus was baptized himself. Seamlessly, their mind would have gone to that event, and they would have been thinking of redemption and deliverance. Now, still, we probably have to ask, okay, that's great. They're thinking about his baptism, but what in the world does his baptism have to do with a testimony that proves that he is the Son of God? Well, if you remember the story, right after Jesus is baptized and Jesus is there, the spirit descends like a dove and the clouds part and God the Father speaks and he says, behold, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. God says this. So John is saying, okay, the first witness, you want three good witnesses? Okay. The first character witness I have is a big one. It's God the Father. He's saying, okay, when when Jesus was baptized, God even told us, this is my son. The father literally split the skies and spoke so that you would have no doubt about this. Now, remember, these people aren't that far removed from the date of Jesus' baptism. So there are other people who'd be like, yeah, I saw that, man. It was crazy. They knew that this has happened. God had spoke. God had testified. That's who he is. He is my son. That's a pretty strong first witness. But John's like, hey, don't worry, I got more though. If you need more, I've got more. And and that's why he shifts to the blood. There's not one witness. There's not two, there's three. But I'll move to number two, he says. Again, back in history, to understand the blood, we have to go to Exodus again. In the story of Exodus, when God's people were in bondage, around that time, the story of Passover is presented. Every Jewish family in uh, Passover would take a a young baby lamb, an innocent lamb, and they would kill it at the same time. Imagine a whole group of people, all with lambs, all killing them at the exact same time, and they would take the blood of this innocent lamb, and they would paint it over the doorpost or the threshold of their home. So innocent blood painted over their doorpost, and, and on that night, judgment would pass them, and their firstborn sons wouldn't die. This is the message, innocent blood covering you spares you from the judgment that you would otherwise have. So what happens for them when they hear he came in the blood, they're going to immediately be thinking of this blood of innocence, this blood that had been brought to spare them from death. And each year they observe this Passover to remember the blood that brings redemption, innocent blood brings redemption. And it's done it in the past and God has delivered them in the past and he will deliver us in the future. Now these original uh, readers, when he says Jesus came in the blood, would have known that this was referencing the cross. Jesus was hung on a Roman cross as the spotless lamb. Have you ever wondered why he was baptized during Passover? It's to show all the, the religious people, guys, all that, the lamb stuff that you've been doing years and years and years, it's just foreshadowing. He's the spotless lamb of God. Jesus is the new lamb. Jesus is the innocent blood that you don't have to keep killing uh, lambs all the time anymore because his is the blood. He died literally during Passover celebration, providing the innocent blood from here on out that covers the people of God. Now remember, Jesus' death and his, uh, or his baptism and his death uh, might be over 2,000 years in the past for us, but for them, it's like 60, 70, 80 years in the past. There were still witnesses of this. There were still accounts of it. And again, we may have to ask, okay, but how does Jesus on the cross show that Jesus is the Son of God? Uh, how is he hung on the cross, and how does that give a testimony? Well, 
Again, what were the words that were uttered at that point? On the cross, Jesus utters himself, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, speaking to God. And then later he cries out, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me right before he died? And upon his death, it says that darkness came over the earth, an earthquake shook everything, the veil in the temple was torn, which is even the created world going, something has happened as Jesus has died. Jesus declared himself the Son of God. So you have God the Father, and then you have God the Son, two key witnesses there declaring that Jesus is the very Son of God. Again, you may ask, well, how do I know he's not lying? Well, I mean, when everyone dies, does the sky go dark and an earthquake happen? I, I don't know. I don't, probably not. And then there's a third witness, the witness of the Spirit. All right, if you're cluing in, he's going, I've got a pretty great group of testimonies called the entire Trinity. And he's calling readers' mind back to specifically the date of Pentecost, but even more so the, the job and the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our faith. The Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost for the early church for them to do the work of the ministry. But the primary role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to declare to us who Jesus is. The Bible would say you cannot believe in Jesus without the Spirit illuminating and showing you and kind of removing the veil from your eyes over who Jesus is. So the Holy Spirit is always going, look at Jesus. That's who Jesus is, speaking to his character and his existence and who he is at all points. The original audience would have really immediately known John's point. Oh, when he's saying the Spirit... The spirits also have been pressing into our heart that Jesus really is the Son of God as well. He's putting together that third witness as God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. All three agree that Jesus is the Son of God on the Christ. I don't, we've gone out there so much in this weird form of power where we're, I think our minds still kind of go, okay, yeah, so. But if you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God and not just some man, and he did what he said he did, then your life has to be changed by that. Right? There has to be something that happens. And so John, what he's doing here, make no mistake, he's not begging you and me to believe. Right? He's presenting a, a case. He's not turning to the, to the jury going, oh, please, 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 please actually say this is who he is. He's saying, this is the Son of God, the Christ. I have plenty of evidence to support it. Now choose what you'll do with that information. Will you believe it or will you not? I have credible witnesses. And again, remember, their original audience that this book was written to, there was still been witnesses around for, for all of those events. It, it wasn't us who were like, how do you know the Bible's real and all this other stuff. They, people saw it, so they knew. John's message, though, is you need to decide what you're going to do. Verses 9 and 10. It says, if you received the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Now, Look at what John is saying in this part of the section. He's, he's, he's crossed over kind of out of the, the trial, and now he's just speaking to us, saying, okay, you'll accept the testimony of three men, any men, three men. You'll, you'll accept it. It's enough for you to make a judgment, a ruling, to, 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 to bring charges against someone in the court of law. You'll accept the testimony of three men. Why won't you accept the testimony of the entire Godhead? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
And he even brings this line of logic going, okay, the testimony of God is greater than the, the, the testimony of men. You'll accept the testimony of men. Why won't you accept the greater testimony? And then John in his writing, we, we can maybe understand he's doing something pretty significant. In a text we dealt with several weeks ago, he says, when your heart condemns you, understand that God has overcome or God is greater than your heart. So don't believe your heart over God. God is greater then in a text a week or two ago, when the world condemns you, know that God is greater than the world and he has overcome the world. And then in the text today, when man testifies otherwise about what God has said and who Jesus is, understand once again that God is greater than man. John wants us to understand the preeminence of God. He's not like us. He is over and above, and he wants us to clearly understand something else in this text. He says, let's go back and read in 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in him. Hear this, whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar, right? In the baptism, God spoke, that's my son. When we go, Jesus is not the Son of God, John's flipping the view, you're calling God a liar. You're declaring that the Father is a, a, a liar. So what we need to understand in this is, is we've got to be a little bit careful here, right? We got to be careful what false truths we, we believe in and, and what testimonies we believe in from other men and women around us, especially if they start chipping away at the person and character of Jesus, which is what John calls antichrists. Anything that reshapes, redefines, or limits or lowers who Jesus is, that's an antichrist. And John's gone over and over and over. Be careful of any of those and when you accept those, and when you live by them, and, and, and when you start uh, kind of declaring this to be your new truth, he goes, just understand you're calling God a liar. It's not, it's not an innocent thing. You are posturing yourself, and you are personally putting God on trial. And I believe this is just a warning to us. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has a, a theological degree in their own mind, and everyone's floating different things out there. This is who Jesus is, and this is what he meant, and, and John's going, be careful. Just, just make sure that you don't place yourself in a spot where you call God a liar. Yes, we can have doubts. Yes, we can struggle. At times, it's difficult to, to line up what we believe with how we act, and we can struggle in the middle of all that, and God gives grace towards that. But be careful about our doubts and what we do with them because if we're reducing Jesus, we're beginning to fight God and bring charges against him. Don't bring charges against the Father. Doubt, but doubt well. And be careful how you project your doubt. Be careful about the bravado that you kind of strike in your tone with how you redefine Jesus because you're doing something between you and God when you do it. Verses 6 through 8 of this text, it, it deals with the claim that Jesus is the Son of God and he gives us three testimonies. Here's three big testimonies for you. Then in verse 9 through 10, he gives you reasons to believe on a very practical level, saying, hey, you'll believe in what three men say. Why won't you believe in what the entire Trinity, the Godhead, says? Those are the external reasons, the ones that we see, the, the ones that we can visualize. But then in verse 11 and 12, John turns to the internal reasons, the internal proof, the things that kind of deal with our heart and the inside realm of us. Verses 11 through 12, he says, and this is the testimony that God, there are times, we and Garrett talk about this a lot, there are times I, I wish that we could just hear the words for the power in them. So many times words just kind of scoot by us, but these are ones you want to be like, be awed because this is good. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. 
And this life is in his son. That one kind of section of sentences, man, I pray that we wrestle with that all week. God has given you eternal life and the only way to find it or access it, though, is through Jesus. Whoever has the son has life and whoever does not have the son does not have life. He's making a a demarcation that our world doesn't like. There will some who will have life and they're only the ones who believe in Jesus and there are some who won't and they're the ones that don't. John is telling us what we believe about Jesus isn't an irrelevant matter of thoughts in our head. There's something deeper. It isn't like the belief of whether Shakespeare's really is or isn't the best pizza in Columbia. It's pretty high up there, though. It's not like the beliefs of whether we should have had roll carts 15 years ago in Columbia for our trash. That's the only time I get an amen, right? That's great. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, And it's not even like the decision of, like, when do we stop wearing masks? Is it May or June? Like, it's not like any of those. Those beliefs and those thoughts, they hold an external weight and external power and physical ramifications in the physical world. But John wants us to see what we believe about Jesus affects us internally. It does something in us. And here the words that the Bible would like to use many times. What you believe has massive consequences inside of you. What you believe forms you. Why do we do call to worship? Why do we do sermons all the time? Why do we pray? Why do we worship? Because there's this formulation of our belief through that because we know that what we believe does something inside of us. It's not inconsequential. John says it this way, to accept that Jesus is the Son of God and in him is eternal life is to accept life. It's literally to find and experience something new and beautiful in Jesus. And to reject who Jesus is is to reject that life. I, I over the, the last couple of weeks, have um, had the pleasure of meeting uh, a man and his wife. Uh, he's been a pastor in Nigeria for uh, over 45 years, I believe. His name is, is Pastor Kapula. And I, and I sat with him for three and a half hours two weeks ago with a couple pastors. And just as a guy who still tries to consider himself younger, uh, we're just trying to glean wisdom from this man. And he's one of those guys, if you ever talked around, uh, we kind of judge sometimes in not a great way. When people talk, you're like, yeah, he's full of it. And then other people talk and you're like, I'm going to listen. He's one of the, I'm, the, I'm going to listen guys. And one of the things that he kept saying over and over in this three and a half hours that we were together is, is in his, uh, he speaks English perfectly, even though he's from Nigeria, but over and over, he just kept saying, in Jesus, there's life. And, and he would say it in this way that you're like, you really believe that? Over and over, like, do you get it? There's life. And the way he said it just kind of communicates there's this depth and this thing and this beauty there that's not normal. And everybody walking around doesn't have it. He's going, the only life, the only place, the only fountain is Jesus. And that's what John wants us to know here. Accepting and believing in Jesus, this deep belief that forms you and leads you and guides you, it leads you into a life that you will not have any other way because there's no other name. There's no other way. There's no other place. What John wants us to see and and address here is how we're believing in Jesus and understand that how we believe in Jesus in the moment, not just cognitively about facts and why I kind of think he was this, but how our heart believes in Jesus will translate into an experiential faith. 
a faith that's deeper than a couple rituals, a faith that's doing a deep work inside of you. And he goes, I want you to know that there's something greater, a work inside of you that can happen only through believing in Jesus. That's why this is more than an external battle over a trial. It's why belief is so important because it's the only way. What he wants us to understand on another level is what we believe about Jesus doesn't just affect us when we die. And this is the, the bill of goods that many of us were sold when we were young, right? The, the fire insurance in Jesus, that Jesus is just, is just kind of making sure that things go okay for you in, in eternity, that he's an eternal life insurance policy for all of humanity and the benefits of Jesus kick in when you kick the bucket. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible invites you into the kingdom of God and eternal life in the moment that you put your faith in Jesus. And John is going, do you understand that there's life available right now, not 40 or 20 or 30 or however many years in the future you have? There's life now. So believe. Jesus, or John is calling us to this real experiential faith. Experience Christ now. Believe in him right now. Now the world is screaming to us every day, passively and actively. Do this to find life. No, do this. Believe this to find life. No, be like this to find life. Lose 20 pounds to find life. Find a new hobby to, to, to find life. We have more kids around, so have more nighttime married activity to find life and better nighttime married activity to find uh, life, have more money, be louder, be important, be right. Uh, all of these things, do this to find life is the message that they're giving over and over and over. And yet what John is saying is, yeah, none of that works. Literally none of that will fulfill you. Hear me, it's a message of grace, not a message of legalism to go every other fountain you're drinking of will never sustain you or fill you. It'll never work. Yes, there are things in the world. We're not anti-being uh, out in the world. We're not, we're not making cults where we're all sticking together. There's some good and great things about the world, but when you put all of your hope into feeding into getting life out of the world, yes, you can have some momentary smiles and momentary moments of happiness, but you'll still find a hole in your heart that still deeply wants something more, and that's why you'll turn from thing to thing to thing to thing to try and feed off. And John's going, it's only Jesus, though. So I pastor Capula over and over. In Christ, you find life. There's no other way. Man, I loved when he said that. We are meant to hear this text and think of Jesus' words on the bread of life. Right? This invitation, come feed. I'm the bread. Come to me, all who hunger all who need satisfied, all who are weary. And that's just not, hey, come to me if you've had a crummy month. It's if your soul hurts and you need more, I'm the place. Kept thinking this week, though, oh, baby, you got what I need. Jesus like, oh, oh, guys, it's me. I've got what you need. I'd sing, but I can't. There's, <laughs> there's, no, other, there's no other way. Come to Jesus and believe in him in a way that follows him like he asks you to in a way that takes you into deeper water, in a way that challenges you. If you believe in Jesus in a way that doesn't challenge you, the, the reality is you don't believe in Jesus at all. You're your God. Believe in Jesus and what he said and how he leads you and submit to him, right? Get yourself out of the driver's seat, into the pasture saying, you can lead, you can drive, I'll follow where you go because you're the only way. I've led for a long time, it hasn't been super great. So I'll follow you. Jesus invites us to do that and to see when you do this, this is where you'll find life. I'm not a burden. 
I'm not going to take your life. I'm not a killjoy. I'm not trying to remove the good things of life. I'm trying to, and here's what we hope that we begin to understand. Jesus giving us eternal life is not taking our humanity. It's restoring it. Sin takes away our humanity. It takes away the way we love, the way we care, the way we live, our hope, and all of those things. And as our faith is in Jesus, bit by bit, it's restored. We'll dig more into this eternal life uh, next week and what it means more fully because this trial is kind of a, uh, an intro into a closing of eternal life. Right? I'll foreshadow it. John goes, I'm writing all of this so you will have this. He doesn't want you to walk away without it. So as we kind of close down this text for today, I just want to ask us a couple questions and I'll speak to you. If you are here and you're a believer and your faith is in Jesus, I just ask you to think about right now. And we can tend to like think of our glory days, like the guy who's preferably thinking of when he was on the high school varsity football team. No, no, think of the you now. Right now, are you experiencing life in Christ? Is there this depth in this thing happening where, where literally you can feel him working? And I don't mean, I'm not trying to get crazy and out there where like you feel this different thing like every second or like, is he molding you though? Do you feel the Spirit's leading ever? Do you feel the hope that comes in Jesus? Do you feel actually sustained when Jesus says, come to me and I will carry your burdens? Do you feel that in any kind of realm of your life in the here and now? If the answer to that is no, then what John is telling you is echoing what Jesus already said. Come again to me and let me give you life. That doesn't mean you lost your salvation and you're getting saved again, but it does mean that we, we so quickly will begin to feed off of other things. I got Jesus eternally, I'm good, and then we go to other, other places. Like Jesus gives me salvation and other things will make me happy. That's a dichotomy that we set up. And Jesus is going, hey, if you've done that, come back. Let let me give you eternity and find happiness in me. The hope that we would understand is Jesus has not come to only transform your morals. Yes, he will transform your behavior. But he's came to give you the fullness of life and life more abundantly. And I wish it weren't so, but prosperity preachers have hijacked hijacked the term abundant life. It has nothing to do with your finances. And it has to do with the fullness of life and the satisfaction and the deep joy. Remember, John's writing this. I'm writing this so that your joy may be full. That's what abundant life is. If that experiential faith where Jesus is near and walking with you and actually feels like it's a good thing, if that's kind of a distant memory for you right now, my ask would just be this. Would you pray about that as we close in worship? before you kind of take out the table, telling Jesus, really what's happened, Jesus, I, I believe in you and I have believed in you, but I, I think the, the, the pragmatic way that my belief in you and my life is getting walked out somehow has gotten off. So will you come please and give me another Exodus moment where you redeem me from, from my sin? I need you to set me free. Let me find life in you again. Show me a fresh way to follow you. Give me eternal life again. Again, this is not saying save me over again. It's, there's a difference between our union and communion with God. If you are united with him, you'll never be taken away. But the experiential communion, how your faith feels, unfortunately, that can do this. And you're asking him, will you restore my communion? My heart is weak. My, my flesh has been strong. I need you. 
pray about that as we close. And if you want to wrestle with that even further and you want to bring out the big guns, maybe for a day this week you fast and go, God, my eyes have been set on other things and I've been feeding on so many other things. So just in this physical, tangible way, I won't eat for a couple of these meals so I can say I need you more. He'll meet you there. Not if it's a diet, but if your spirit is saying, show me life in you, he'll do it. He'll do it. I believe it in my bones. We've talked about it lately, and it all started off of this video that, that we watched or this test. I don't have time to go into it, but a testimony from somebody overseas who came to America, and, and they said, uh, I've got to go back to this persecuted country because as they were here, they go, the, the American Christians are asleep. There's, a, there's this like, satanic lullaby over them, and they're all asleep. I've got to go. Just being here is doing something to my heart. I've got to get out. What we have to understand is that is true. We've had this kind of spiritual uh, anesthesia where we have been living, but we've been out. And God's at the door knocking, going, do you want life? Come, open the door, follow me, begin to leave. God, I don't know how to believe. Pray, we'll work it out. That's his offering today. And the second question is if you've never experienced anything like that. Maybe Jesus has been more of a, a moral guideline than an actual friend to you. I just want to invite you to see that Jesus is much more than that. He's the only fountain of life, and he's offering that to you today. And if that's something that maybe you're realizing, man, I just thought it was these things that you do and don't you do and all of that, and you're, and you're telling me there's more and you want a part of that, I would invite you to pray as well. And I'd be happy if you don't know how to do that to pray with you after the service. And if, if you do uh, pray without me, come tell somebody else so we can pray and just kind of celebrate with you. There's a whole lot more, no matter what the world tells you, there's a whole lot more to Christianity than calling yourself evangelical or, or, or voting a certain way. There's life available. And the offering is there for you. And my hope is that some of us would kind of pick that offering up again, and maybe that some of us would walk into it for the very first time and find beauty in Christ and Christ alone. Garrett, you can come back up. And we'll, we'll close today understanding. John has shown us two things. Hey, I've got external evidence. And I've got a really big internal reason for you to believe in who Jesus is. The hope and the prayers that we would believe more fully. God, help my unbelief. Help the areas that I'm not believing now. The hope together is that we would do that. Today we'll take communion and anyone is, is free to take. If you didn't get a cup, you can grab one on the way in. All that we ask is that your faith be in Jesus for the problem of your sin to, to take. But 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 is the, the verse that we read every week for this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here's what we're doing. In communion and when we take, we're saying there is a sacrifice. Your body and blood has been shed for me. I, I, I don't have to crucify myself. I don't have to atone for myself. There is a perfect sacrifice for me. And you take it and say, God, let me live in light of what you've done. Feed me, grow me, and you rest in the beautiful sacrifice for you. I pray that you would take and you'd be built up. And this life would be, uh, this week would even be a pursuit of deeper life in Christ. Help me to believe. Help me to find deeper meaning and deeper life in you. And I, I believe Jesus will meet us there if we do. We stand with me and pray with me before we sing.
God, I thank you for today that we can come and gather. I thank you that just even a couple more of our families can come back and we're grateful to gather uh, together and worship you and see who you are. We pray, Holy Spirit, come and do only what you can. Spirit, come and show us that these words aren't empty. I pray even in the moments before we go that you would encourage our hearts where necessary. For some of us, it's been 14, 15 months since we've worshiped. Would you heal us? Would you close the gap that maybe has, has grown to where we feel and experience you once again? I pray, Holy Spirit, would you do your work? Show us Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your patience. Forgive us for the ways that we find life and we taste that you are good. And then life just seemingly happens and we walk to other thing after thing after thing. We confess our need. Lord, may we find life in you again. Father, thank you for the way that you've created. Forgive us for the ways that we challenge you, that we doubt you, that we put your holiness on trial as if the creation could even do such a thing. Forgive us. Draw us to you. Let us see life. I pray that you would heal the brokenness in us. Let us find life and joy and hope. Would you restore joy and hope in you? We pray that in your beautiful name. Be glorified, God. Amen.